Well, the Lord, now in his last, the last stop city of Jericho, was merely a half day's walk from Jerusalem. His men and the ever-increasing crowd of Jewish people who were accompanying him, now including Bartimaeus and his companion, as, long, as well as Zacchaeus, this uh, crowd are also growing, not only numerically, but they're growing in their hopeful expectation of what will happen when Jesus does get to Jerusalem. They're anticipating a very soon display and use of his miraculous powers that will help to deliver them from their oppression to gent the Gentile Romans, much as Moses had miraculously delivered their forefathers from their slavery to Egypt. Uh, it was the time of the Passover. Passover is getting very close in our study. And, of course, at the time of Passover, messianic expectations were always high for the restoration of the once glorious Davidic kingdom. But they were even more heightened now that one as potent and as authoritative as Jesus was in their midst and on the scene. What the Jewish people, by and large, did not understand is the significance of what the Lord had just stated in verse 10 of Luke 19, and which was exemplified by the salvation of Zacchaeus, who, like you and I, was a come shorter. We're all come shorters. We all come short of the glory of God. But what they didn't understand, by and large, was the significance of his statement, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the key verse of Luke's gospel. And did you notice that there is not one two-syllable word in that statement. Isn't that amazing how the Lord can speak so simply that a child could understand him and yet is so deep and so profound. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Not a single two-syllable word in that sentence. The majority of the people, you see, were more occupied with a political answer to their physical bondage than they were with seeking a spiritual answer to their bondage to sin. Rome was really not their greatest enemy. Sin was their greatest enemy. And when the Lord would not charge into Jerusalem on a white horse, leading a, a Jewish army of, of sword-bearing zealots to defeat and drive out the Romans, Israel as a people would join her false spiritual leaders in saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Crucify him. And because the nation rejected her rightful king, she did not receive the promised kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without the king. She wouldn't receive the kingdom at that time. It had to be, what? Postponed. Now, someday God's covenant promises to Israel and all of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth. One day they will be fulfilled. And this parable that we're going to look at this morning, which is only found in Luke's Gospel, the parable of the pounds, deals specifically with the Lord's return prior to his establishment of the millennial kingdom, the literal kingdom on earth. You know, it's, it's great to know that Jesus Christ, it's absolutely the most wonderful thing of all to know that Jesus Christ came the first time to this earth to live a perfect life before us so that we might have an example of how man ought to be, how man ought to live. And it's, of course, wonderful to know that he also came to earth in order to die for us and uh, that he rose again on the third day as the first fruit of the resurrection, that one day you and I too will resurrect from the dead if we have put our faith in his um, death for us. 
And it's wonderful to know that he now intercedes for us on our behalf as our high priest in heaven. But it's even, I don't know if it's even greater, but it's great to also know that he is coming again. You know, I was raised in a church that never, ever taught the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was absolutely blown away when I first heard that Jesus Christ was coming again. I said, what? He is? <laughs> but that would be like having a book without an ending, wouldn't it? Like Herman the Bullfrog. What if we didn't know the ending of how that little story... <laughs> you have to have an ending. Of course he has to come again. The first time he came to, to redeem men to God and to reveal God to men. Why is he coming the second time? Because he didn't get to do the third hour. He redeemed and he revealed, but he has to yet reign. No, he resurrected. He, he's going to reign. He's got to come again to, to reign. Uh, this world, this is really good news in light of everything that's happening in our dark world today, but this world will not always be under the wicked oppression of the enemy of God. Amen. But as close as uh, the time of his coming is getting, and I do believe one thing I was really grateful for this extra week that I had with the snow and everything was that I was able to read some other things I've been wanting to read on prophecy and I am, and the feasts of Israel, and I am more convinced than ever that we are very, very close, that we're right there at the, at the tippity-tip end. He's about to return for us in the rapture. But that time isn't here yet. Not yet. And so in the meanwhile... The Lord's servants here on earth, and I hope everyone in this room is one of his true servants, so we, are, we have a duty to perform. And I think we should get more busy at that duty than we ever have been before. Uh, and our duty, according to the Lord's command in this parable, the parable of the parents, is that we are to occupy till he comes. We are to carry on the business of investing the pound, which I believe is this pound right here. I actually put it on my scale yesterday to see how much it was. Now, the pound in the parable is talking about a monetary value, but I believe the pound uh, symbolizes the word of God, the gospel message, the truth of, of God's message of salvation. It was interesting that um, I have a lot of extra stuff in my Bible, but it was right around a, a pound. If I took all that extra stuff out, it probably would be right at a pound. So we're to be investing the pound that he has entrusted to our care in his absence, we're to be investing it in every place and in every heart bank that we possibly can. Well, let's look at the, the, um, the account here. It's found in Luke 19, verses 11 to, where does it end? 27. But I want to begin uh, just by reading, let me, you know what, let me just read 11 to 14, the departure of the king. All right, 11 to 14. It says, in verse 11, and as they heard these things. Now, who are the they? All right, it would be his disciples and Zacchaeus and probably Bartimaeus and a big, huge crowd. Remember, the streets were lined with people and then they were complaining because he went into Zacchaeus' house to have uh, uh, probably a dinner. He comes out of the house and says in verse 9, he confirms Zacchaeus' salvation and then he goes on to say in verse 10 that key verse for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost and it says and as they heard these things the people and his disciples and everyone else he added and spake a parable and now here this is rare but we are again as in the parable of the persistent widow we are given the reason for the parable we're not always given a reason for why he spoke 
speaks parables. But in this case, we are. What's the reason for this parable? It was because he was nigh or near to Jerusalem and because they thought, the people thought, and his disciples thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. As I just said to you, they were expecting that as soon as he got into Jerusalem, the kingdom would appear. He'd march in, you know, use his power somehow or another to defeat Rome, and they would have the kingdom. So that's why he gives the parable, which starts in verse 12. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. And notice these words, ladies, and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Again, he's talking about he's coming till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. All right, I'm going to stop right there for now. This is the departure of the king. The Lord began the parable by telling of a certain nobleman who traveled into a far country to receive a kingdom. Now, although this man may have left as a nobleman, he did indeed return with the full authority of a king. We see that as we go on in the parable. It says in verse 15 that it came to pass that when he returned, having received the kingdom. So he left as a nobleman, but he returns with the full authority of a king. But not only that, he also returns with the full authority of a judge. Although the Lord's followers were, uh, the disciples we saw were also caught up in all of this. They were hoping to very shortly see him set up himself as king in Jerusalem. This parable we find is yet one other way that the Lord predicts not only his rejection. You see in verse 14 that his citizens hated him. That speaks of his rejection. They're also called his enemies over in verse 27. But it predicts his departure. The nobleman went where? Into a far country, which would speak of his ascension back into heaven. So this is another way, besides his direct prophetic statements, the seven that we talked about a couple weeks ago, this is another way he predicts his rejection and his departure, but he also goes on to predict his return and the eventual fulfillment of his kingdom. Kingdom. You know, the postponement of the millennial kingdom where Jesus Christ will reign over this whole world as King of Kings and Lord of Lords from Jerusalem. The postponement of that kingdom in no way negates the fulfillment of that kingdom in a future day. Notice the last three words, as I said, in verse 12, and to return. And the last four words of verse 3, uh, occupy till I come. Notice also the words in verse 15, when he was returned. Notice the words in verse 23, at my coming. In this parable, he is definitely predicting his return. You know, next to the subject of faith, this is amazing, but next to the subject of faith, the second coming is the most talked about su subject in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Isn't that incredible? So if you're in a church that never speaks of the second coming of Christ, like my church that I was grown up in, it's, they're missing something, aren't they? They're missing a big portion of the scripture. They're missing the end of the story. Next to the subject of faith, the second coming is the most talked about subject. In fact, did you know that for every, t every one time the first coming of Christ is mentioned, the second coming is mentioned eight times. <laughs> What am I doing here? <laughs> so for every one time the first coming is mentioned, the second coming is mentioned eight times.
times. That's amazing. And we are warned in the Bible over 50 times to be ready for his coming. The church is warned and the tribulation saints are warned to be ready and, and Israel more than 50 times. And that's what this parable is basically about. Being ready, occupying till the time of his return. Prior to his departure to receive in the far country his appointment as king, the Lord goes on and says that this nobleman, of course is a picture of himself, called forth his ten servants. Now, the term a far country, he was going to go into a far country, that term actually suggests to us that his departure is going to be for a while. He isn't just going into a, a nearby village to receive his kingdom, the authority for, you know, to rule over his kingdom. And he isn't even just going into a neighboring country to receive it, is he? He's going into a far country. So that suggests he's going to be gone for a while. Also, in a comparable parable, which he will speak in less than a week's time from the Mount of Olives, which is called the parable of the talents, that parable is very similar to this parable of the pounds. There are some distinct differences, but it's also very similar. But in that parable, it says that the, uh, the, the man who went into the far country would be gone a long time, a long time. But uh, so he calls forth his ten servants. And when they come to him, what does he give them? Ten pounds. Now, as we go through the parable, we find out that he gave each servant one pound. He didn't give ten pounds to each of the ten servants. He gave each servant the same, an equal amount. They each got... He's got one pound, the word of God. Now, um, or the gospel. The, the Greek word for pound is mana. It doesn't have an I in it. You would see it written M-I-N-A, but in the Greek it's just M-N-A, mana, like that. And it was not a weight. I know I was being silly about, you know, a pound and everything, but, um, and weighing it. But it really doesn't refer to a pound as you and I think of a pound. It referred to a monetary value of somewhere around 100 days wages. I don't know the significance of that, but it was about 100 days wages, which, which would be a 100 denaria. Denarii, denaria, denarium, whatever. Denarii, 100 denarii, whatever. Now, some people have asked, well, why, why did this nobleman have 10 servants? Why didn't he have 12? You know, because um, he had 12 apostles. But then one of them was a tear, right? Judas Iscariot. So why didn't he have 11 servants? But then there was Paul, so he could, we could go back to 12. <laughs> but anyway, why, did he, why were there 10 servants? Well, this figure is used probably because 10 in the Bible, I don't have time to develop this, but just take my word for it. 10 is the biblical number for human government, okay? Um, and he left his stewardship of his affairs in his absence into the hands of his human representatives. They would be ruling over his, his kingdom in his absence. Now, you know, even though he left to get his future kingdom, in the meanwhile, his kingdom exists in the hearts of his servants. It's an intermediatory spiritual kingdom in the hearts of all true born-again servants. Uh, of his. But anyway, why, why 10, not 12? Well, probably because that's human government number. And also it would, 
it would represent all of the Lord's servants, not just his apostles, his immediate apostles, but all of his servants throughout the church age and even his servants in the tribulation age. And if he had said 12, we would just automatically think of the apostles. So 10, you know, broadens it to all of us. We are all to be occupying until he comes. Now, clearly, the nobleman of the parable represents the Lord Jesus. He describes himself as a man of a noble family. Actually, the Greek word for noble man means one who is well-born, well-born. He is a man who was, in fact, the Lord is a man who was the greatest noble man that this world has ever seen because he not only came from Earth's best blood, he was the son of Abraham, and the son of David, but he is also heaven's best because he is the eternal and only begotten son of the living God. So if ever there was a noble man, it was the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, he goes on to say that he traveled into a far country, which represents heaven, and we know that it was after his ascension into heaven that he sat at the right hand of God the Father. It was then that all power in heaven and on earth was granted to him. We actually even have the words that God the Father spoke to God the Son when he did come and sit at his right hand. He said, it says in the scripture, this is Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord, God, said unto my Lord, the Lord Jesus, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Well, all right, so uh, in the meantime, in it, well, excuse me, in addition to distributing the pounds to his servants, he also gave a command. What was that command? Occupy till I come. Now, the Greek word for occupy, not that this is important to you, but it's pragmatevome. It's a mouthful. <laughs> but this is the only time that that word occurs in the New Testament. And it means literally, you know what an occupation is? Your work, right. Occupation, um, occupy pragmotevome, means to do business. It means to carry on a business or to trade. Later on in this parable, we see the word trading. It's a good command. It's a command that in effect says, get busy with this pound and, and do business with it and keep doing business with it. It's the occupy is given in the present continuous tense. Keep doing business with it. Get, get to work trading with it, uh, investing it, earning interest on it, using it however you can to make a great profit for the time of my return is what he's saying. Put my pound, which I have entrusted to you, to work. Occupy till I come. You know, we have the greatest occupation of all. If, you know, if you're unemployed, if you're retired, if you're a Christian, you're not unemployed, you're not retired. I've got news for you. You, you, are, you have an occupation. And it is to do business with this book right here to invest it in the lives of other people, to invest it in your own life, which is why I guess you're here this morning. The point was not to just, now you're all occupying a seat. You know, I think many Christians have taken this command the wrong way, and they think, well, they're just going to occupy, keep a pew warm somewhere. That's, that's not what he means here at all. <laughs> he wants you to invest, us to invest the pound so that there would be much fruit, much profitable benefit from it.
at the time of his return. In other words, the servants are not only to take care of the pound entrusted to them, but they are to do constructive things with it uh, for the profitable benefit of the master, not for themselves. They're not to take the pound, which is 100 days wages, and go and spend it on themselves. They're to use it for the benefit of the master. So this would involve a lot of selfless, selfless wisdom. The servants would have to redeem the time of their master's absence wisely. They would have to work diligently. They would have to um, not let the trials and the troubles and the tribulations of this, of this uh, world hinder their labor. Furthermore, think about this, they would have to trust faithfully in the promise of his return, no matter how long he might be gone. Anything that's going to be profitable. Have you discovered this in your own lives? I'm sure you have. Anything that's going to be profitable, even if you, you know, plant a garden, if it's going to be profitable for you, you have, it, it involves a lot of hard work. Things just don't come easy. Success in Christian service requires a whole lot of perspiration, a whole lot of diligence, and another term for it is sweat. And the reason I say that is because when we get to the word napkin, you're going to find something interesting. It really talks about sweat. Okay, but we'll leave that for a minute when we get to it. So Jesus here is essentially telling his servants that their positions, you know, they had all these high and lofty ideas about how they were going to reign with him in the kingdom. But he was telling them that their positions were going to be that of wise businessmen, not honored sub-rulers. They're going to have to get out there with their briefcases. They're going to be businessmen. You know, my husband is a salesman, and his product is furniture. Our product is even greater than furniture, a lot greater than furniture. Our product is the Word of God. So he's telling them they're going to be a businessman, salesman. In fact, the parable goes on in verse 14 to say that while the nobleman would be absent from the land, the citizens of the land over which he would reign would conspire together to send a ma message after him that they would not have this man. And notice the word man is not in the original manuscripts. Well, how do we know that? Because it's italicized, and whenever a word's italicized, it's not in the original so they're saying, we will not have this terrain. Remember how they've used that term before to speak derogatorily of, uh, of Christ? We will not have this despicable one to reign over them. So in saying that, there in verse 14, that the Lord was really again displaying his omniscience. You know, he's really predicting in advance the hate of, of the people. Even though right now in time when he said this, the crowds are hovering around him, and they're, they're hailing him, and, and they're, they're very, he's very popular right now, except with the Jews who are criticizing him for having eaten with Zacchaeus. But otherwise, the people, he's really popular with them. Yet, we know that within less than a week's time, some of those same people will be shouting out to Pilate, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but but Caesar. So Jesus here was really forewarning his followers that they should not expect to be honored by those of this present world because if they don't honor him, the nobleman returned king, they certainly would not honor his servants, right? The servant is not greater than his master. 
So his followers needed to know that they would be occupying, they would be doing business among a people who were hostile to their business operation with, you know, their business with the pound that had been entrusted to them. And why is that? Why would they be antagonistic toward them? You know, my husband, to be a salesman sometimes is a humiliating job because he'll go into furniture stores and if they have a customer, he's, he's really put on the back burner. And if they have one customer after another, which isn't happening nowadays because everything is off, but uh, he could sit there all day before they take time to see him, you know, and it's, it's just sort of a humbling um, job. But to be a salesman in a hostile world why do, why do they think so lowly of, of the businessmen with the pound? Because they are very antagonistic toward the one they work for. You know, they hate their boss, <laughs> the boss. In fact, we're told that the, um, the enemies of the Lord, as they're called in, in 27, actually do hate the noblemen. But if you'll notice, there is no cause given. It says, but his, and notice they're his citizens. <laughs> they don't want him to reign over him, but they're really his citizens because his whole world is really his by right of creation and redemption. So they're really his citizens. But, you know, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But it says they hated him, but it doesn't give the reason for why they hated him. And that's another fulfillment of messianic prophecy, is that they hated the Messiah. You know, they, this was all predicted back in Psalm 69. They could have known that when the Messiah came, he'd be hated without a cause. It predicts that. He'd be hated without a cause. And the Lord even reminds his own men of this. Later on in the Passion Week, in John 15, 25, he tells them that he would be hated without a cause. Why do you think the world hates Jesus? You know, they still, they hated him then, and they still hate him today. Just try it. Go out there and in the middle of a, a group of people, just bring up the subject of Jesus Christ. Right. The reason they hate him so much is because he tells, he told the truth. People don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear what tickles their ears, don't they? I don't know the motive for that young man coming in and shooting that pastor, but I would think that it probably has something to do with the truth. I don't know. Maybe it'll come out what the motive was, but people don't like to hear the truth. They don't like to hear that they're sinners in need of a Savior. They don't like Jesus because he's too narrow. He said, you know, I am the way. No man comes to the Father but by me. And they hate Jesus because he just shines too much light on their darkness. And they love their darkness, don't they? So he would be hated without a cause. You know, it would be nice. It would really be nice for my husband if he could walk into every furniture store and they'd say, oh, we're so happy to see you, Frank. We just can't wait to write a big order for you, know, with you. <laughs> it would be nice, and it would be a whole lot easier uh, to serve a popular Christ, wouldn't it? But when he is hated, and he is hated today still by the citizens of this world, and he will be until the day of his return, uh, but when he's hated, it becomes a lot more difficult to serve him. And when he is hated by the vast majority of the people, as it is now getting to be in our land, which it wasn't just a few short years ago. Uh, 33 years ago, when I moved down here to the Bible Belt, you could speak about Jesus to anyone in the Bible Belt, and they all, nobody would hate you for it. And they'd all, you know, they'd say maybe they weren't saved, but they would know what you're talking about. But boy, has it changed in just a few short years. <laughs> uh, and so now it, it, it can cause 
Serving an unpopular, even hated Christ can cause some supposed followers to become cowardly and not invest so openly and broadly with the pound that he has entrusted to their care. Uh, but unfortunately for the citizen enemies of the, of the rightful king, they had forgotten one small fact, one small fact. You see, whether they like it or not, he is the rightful inheritor of the kingdom, and he is going to return to rule over them over his kingdom and they will be they will be judged for their rebellion look with me at verse 27 but those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them bring hither and slay them three more one syllable words and slay them before me the wicked of this world forget one truth when it comes to Jesus Christ he will judge them. When he returns as king, he also returns as judge. And that's very serious. That's why you and I need to be occupying. Today, let's look at the second part of our outline. Let's see, that was more than just, that covered more than just the departure of the king. I also dis uh, discussed the duty of the servants and the disdain of the citizens. So we're really moving along quickly, aren't we? <laughs> now we will look at the day of the return. So let's begin by first of all looking at verses 15 to 19. All right, I don't want to discuss, there's three servants who have to give an account of what, even though there were 10 servants, okay? Altogether 10. But we only have the record of the account of three of them, probably because they're three representative of all the servants. One very faithful, one a little less faithful, and one unfaithful, or perhaps even faithless. But right now, let's just look at the two first servants, the faithful, very faithful, and the less faithful. Verses 15 to 19, and it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he, the returned king, said unto him, Well, and in the Greek it's really well done, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he likewise said to him, to him, said likewise to him be thou also over five cities all right we'll stop right there for now so here what we have is at the time of the uh, nobleman's return now he is king and he gives a command that his servants be called to him so they could give a report on how much every man had gained by trading and the first comes to him and he reports very respectfully he says lord thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. Now, you know what that is? That's a return of 1,000%. How would you like that for your money today? <laughs> uh, that's a return of 1,000%. <clears> that's very fruitful. <laughs> that's very faithful. Uh, and notice not only his respect in that he said, Lord, but also his humility. He takes absolutely no credit for what has been gained. He doesn't say, look what I've done with your pound. You know, for one thing, he admits that it's the Lord's pound, thy pound. He doesn't take any credit at all. He just says, uh, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. So he's very humble here. And this is a great gain. He, you know, he might have had a little bit of a right to, to be proud for a thousand percent, but he isn't. 
Um, and especially this is great considering he's doing his business in the midst of hostile citizens. So, um, so, so he's, he's, a, he's a true servant. We have no doubt about that. And um, he doesn't take any credit, as I said, because God will receive, he must and will receive all the glory for any increase which is made with his pound. It's God who giveth the increase. So this guy had the right idea here. Uh, and if ever, would you, would you say if ever there was a 10-pound guy, it would have been the Apostle Paul? And did he ever take any credit for what... I mean, he's still reaching people today with what he did. And yet he said, I labored, yet not I. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He didn't boast over what he had done, but what God had been able to do in and through him. So by wise and diligent investment, the first servant had made a very good profit, much fruit on what had been entrusted to him. And so the king praise not only the man's good work, his work, when he said, well done, but he also praised the man's character because he says, thou good servant. And he says, uh, thou hast been faithful. So he's been good and faithful. That's his character. He had performed his duty faithfully and profitably, even though, if you'll notice, he had not been promised a reward when the one pound had been given to him. We don't read any promise there. He had just been given the pound and, and get, been given a command to occupy till he came. And even though when the master left, he had not yet been a king and was hated by the citizens of the land. So uh, the servant really had no other assurance than his master's word that he would return, let alone that he would receive the kingdom that he had gone to secure in the far country. So the faith of this servant is definitely real. He had occupied in faith. We all need to emulate this guy. We all need to try to be like him. He simply trusted in the master's word. He was busy, diligent, always um, taking every opportunity he had to invest the pound, and he did very well. So after his uh, commendation, the king went on to give the servant a reward. He said, because thou hast been faithful in a very little one pound have thou authority over ten cities now <clears throat> do you notice what the servant's reward is for all his diligent hard work <laughs> and that great news did you think we'd be in the millennial kingdom sitting around having people wait on us no <laughs> his promised reward for all his good hard work is more work he's going to get to rule over 10 cities <laughs> the measure of our responsibilities with christ in the millennial kingdom will be based on our service for christ now in this present you know world in, in the church age during his, the time of his absence and in case that scares you and you say, oh, I don't want to occupy too much because the more I occupy, the more cities I have to reign over. And I can't even imagine reigning over tramway, much less 10 cities. <laughs> Can you? Okay, well, remember this. Whatever he assigns you to do, he also gives you the ability. He equips you to, with the ability to do it. And this is another very biggie. <laughs> In the millennial kingdom, you and I will be in our glorified resurre resurrected bodies and we will have the full capacity of our minds and we will be able to reign over whatever he gives us to reign. So don't worry about, you know, oh, I can't do that. 
will be different then. Now the second servant to report to the returned king was likewise respectful, Lord, call him Lord, and he was likewise humble, not taking any glory for himself and having multiplied his one pound into how many? Five pounds. That's 500%. That's still great, isn't it? That's still good. Not as good, but still good. But we don't notice that the Lord, the, the king says anything complimentary to him like he spoke to the first servant, but then neither does he say anything condemnatory to him like he does to the third servant. So this guy's kind of in between. He probably did his reasonable service, okay? And um, notice the servants were rewarded exactly as they had labored. You know, 10 pounds, 10 cities, 5 pounds, 5 cities. So uh, perfect justice was executed. The second servant was a true servant, but he just wasn't quite as aggressively fervent in his business dealings with the pound entrusted to him as was the first servant. He had received an equal amount. Notice they all received the same, right? They all received one pound. But they, this guy had not apparently invested it as widely as the first servant, or he did not redeem his time as wisely as the first servant, or maybe he wasted some time in his life before he took the pound seriously and began to invest it in the heart banks of others. But whatever the situation might have been, he was a fruit-bearing, true Christian. He just wasn't as profitable for the king as the first had been. Nonetheless, he did far better than the third servant. So let's look at him next, uh, verses 20 to 26. He's really the, the, um, the main, main one we want to look at in this parable. And another came saying, Lord, behold, like, look here, Lord. <laughs> behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up what I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required thine own, mine own with usury, or with interest. And he, the returned king, said unto them that stood by, that would probably be the other seven servants, take from him the pound and give it to him that hath ten pounds. That's kind of the reverse of, of uh, socialism, isn't it? Give, take the pound from the one who has the least and give it to the one that has the most. Now this is in the spiritual realm of things. That's the way it operates. Take from the one who hasn't done anything with his pound and give it to the one who's willing to do something with the pound. All right, and then verse 26 says, For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. I think that's what's happening in our country today. We had. We had abundantly, exceeding abundantly in this country but we have failed to be occupying with the pound. The pulpits of America have failed in the preaching of the uncompromised word of God. And because of that, I think the Lord is taking it from us and giving it to others who are going to do something with it. There are countries where the church is growing like crazy in China and in South Korea 
and in parts of South America and Africa. Pretty soon they're going to be having to, I think they already are, sending missionaries to us. All right, this third representative type of uh, servant was identified with the master and even called him Lord. Did you notice that? As had the previous two servants, and he also admitted that the pound which he had been entrusted with belonged to the nobleman. He said, thy pound. Lord, behold, look, this is a great thing, Lord. <laughs> here's, my, here's your pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin for you. Aren't you proud of me? <laughs> He's the only one here who brings himself into the picture at all. Notice twice he uses the pronoun I. Okay? Now, oh, I have to admit to you, this guy is very difficult to label, and half I could stack up half of my commentaries on this side, and they say he is a true Christian, and the other half I could stack over here, the ones who say he is not a true Christian. Some say he's a um, possessing Christian. Some say he's a professing only Christian. So what I want to do is uh, give you both sides of the story, what they say to support their side and what these say to support their side, and then we'll just leave it up to you. I think it's one of your homework questions, although you'll notice as I go on through this that I can't help but be prejudiced toward the side I decided on. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, some say that because he's called a servant, that this means that he is definitely a true believer. He is called a servant. However, Judas Iscariot was even called an apostle, and we know that he was definitely a tear. It's also to be noted that the returned king calls this third servant a, a wicked servant. And therefore, if he was a true believer, I know one thing. He's not an example we want to follow. Secondly, wouldn't it be awful to go throughout all of eternity being known as one of the Lord's wicked servants? Terrible, terrible, terrible. So... Um, so the number one argument in, that, that these guys say over here that he's a true servant is because he's called a servant. Also, um, they say that he was entrusted with a pound, the word of God, the message of the gospel. But then there have been a lot of people who have been entrusted with a copy of the word of God and even know the gospel message and even stand in pulpits. And yet they themselves are not true believers. If you don't know that, you've got your head stuck in the sand. Um, third, they say he does appear before the return king prior to the time when the enemies, in verse 27, are brought before the king and slain. And, th and that's a good point. He's brought with the other servants before the king to be assessed, and then the citizens are brought before the king later after that, and, and they're all slain. Basically, we could say they're all thrown into the lake of fire. And so because he's separate from them, he's got to be a true servant, just an unfaithful, unprofitable servant. But I'll bring that subject up later on, okay, if I don't remind me. Fourth reason um, they say he's a true servant is because he does call the king Lord. But then many will one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this and that in your name? And he will say to them, what? I never knew you depart from me, ye who work iniquity. All right, those are the strongest reasons for why he might be a true Christian. Just a very 
sorry one. <laughs> now, on the other side, um, let me give you some reasons for those who say he was not a true Christian, Christian, but a tear. Not wheat, but a tear. And you know that there are some people that it is very difficult to know what they are, aren't there? Like, um, I always think of King Saul and Lot. You know, Lot, the Jews, all the way after they read about Lot and on all the way through until, um, well, Jews today, if they don't believe the New Testament, might still think that Lot was an unsaved man. But it, it was all the way until Peter wrote one of the epistles that we found out Lot was actually a righteous man. Because based on his life and his fruit, incest with his daughters, you know, everybody thought he was not until Peter said, yeah, he was, because only the Lord can read the heart. But I know one thing. I don't want my loved ones and friends to stand at the side of my, my grave and wonder where I am. Do you? I don't want them to have to pray me into heaven. <laughs> have you ever been to a funeral where they haven't prayed them into heaven, no matter where they were, but um, are? I want my loved ones and friends to know where I am. So this guy, no matter where he is, he's, he's bad news. But here's why I say... Probably he wasn't a true Christian. Number one, he didn't produce any fruit at all. He didn't produce any fruit with what had been entrusted to him. And the book of James tells us that faith without works is what? Dead. Chapter 2 of James. Furthermore, he disobeyed the Lord's command to occupy, to do business with the pound given to him because he simply wrapped it up in a napkin. He did nothing with it but hide it away. Much like the third ser servant over in the parable of the talents who took the one talent given to him. And by the way, there in that parable, which is in Matthew 25, each of the servants is given a different amount. Here they're all given the equal amount, which is one pound, which is the word of God. There they are given different amounts, five talents, two talents, and one talent. Is that right? Or three talents? Two. Five, two, and one, I think it is. There, what they are given has to do with their talents. It doesn't really mean talents as we think of talents today. It's another monetary thing. But it really speaks of their spiritual gifts. Aren't we all given different spiritual gifts and natural abilities and different opportunities, you know, as far as education is concerned and things like that? Christians have different gifts. And, and how we use them, um, it, that, that is our faithfulness. Now the guy with five talents, he produced five talents. Um, Five. Anyway, he doubled what he had. Ten. Ten. He five and five is ten. <laughs> he produced ten talents. So he doubled his amount. But the guy with two talents also doubled his amount. So both of them were said were the Lord commended them and said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. You see, they were given different amounts, but they received the same reward. Here in the same thing, the pound, but they have different rewards based on what they did with the pound. Have you followed me? Probably not. But. And then there was the other parable. Remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard? That had to do with time. You know, even those who, who work all day were given the same as those who only worked one hour, and the reward was salvation. So really, when you think about, about those three parables, the Lord included everything. He got it all in. It's amazing. Anyway, where was I? Oh, much like the third servant in the parable of the talents, who took his one talent, and what did he do with it? 
he dug a hole in the ground and he buried it. That's, that's what this guy does. He wraps his pound in a napkin. And, and this hiding away is not only uh, disobedience, but it also may show some embarrassment. Maybe not wanting the hateful citizens of the land to, to know his affiliation with the departed nobleman. And it certainly seems to indicate a lack of genuine faith in the nobleman's promise to return. I don't really take him seriously. Oh, I'll just wrap it up. You know, he's not going to return anyway, so I don't have to really do much with it. If he's a true believer, he is one who is very guilty, very guilty of the sin of omission, thinking that somehow it is justifiable before God and enough that he simply did no hurt in this world. Have you ever heard people say, I haven't hurt anybody. I've never murdered anyone. I've never scammed anyone. I'm basically a good person. But then neither have they done any good in the world. And so um, that's basically where, where this guy is. If he's, a, if he's a true Christian, he's very guilty of the sin of omission. Now, here's where I come to the Greek word for napkin. Interestingly, the Greek word is the word for sweat cloth. <laughs> it was a cloth that men would carry, carry with them in order to wipe sweat off of their brows, you know, when they're out in the fields working. What do we call it today? A handkerchief. My dad always, always took a handkerchief with him every day that he went out to work. Um, it was hard work, as we noticed with the first two servants, to occupy for the absent nobleman, to be busy making the most of every opportunity for gain, um, many times at the expense of, of their own personal gain, you know, so busy in uh, occupying for him that they didn't have time to have, you know, make a lot of personal gain. And in spite of their own times of trials, even when they were in trials and tribulation and hardships and other difficult circumstances, of life and living in a hostile land, they still occupied, they still worked, they, um, they were diligent. The third servant, however, had not bothered with all of this hard work, so you see he didn't need a sweat cloth, did he? He didn't work hard, so he didn't need to wipe the perspiration from his brow. He hadn't produced any sweat, so he took that sweat cloth and he used it to simply wrap up and subsequently remove from his view the nobleman's pound. He used the sweat cloth to actually hide his duty. How many people, have you notice how many people don't even carry a Bible to, um, to church? How many people maybe have a Bible somewhere on a dusty shelf that they don't even really, you know, ever hardly go to it? Or they only put it out on the coffee table when the preacher's coming to visit? But, th but then notice that this guy... <laughs> He, he not only hid it away, but he justified his disobedience um, and his slothful sin of omission with an excuse that made things even worse, not better. What he did here is he shifted blame for his own lack of production onto who? Who did he blame for? The master, the returned king. He accused the master of being an austere man a hard man who he feared. He says, I feared you because you're such a hard man. And um, I, I fear you because you're so unjust. You, you take up what you haven't strawed. You reap what you haven't sown. You know, why would I want to work for you? You're just going to, if you do come back, I don't know if you are or not, but I don't really think you are. That's why I'm wrapping it up. But if you do come back, you're just going to take all the glory for yourself. 
Why should I work so hard for you? I'm not going to get any glory out of this. You're going to reap where you haven't sown. What a bunch of baloney. Who's the one who sowed the pounds to begin with? The master, the nobleman, they were his pounds. He sowed them to his servants, and they were to sow them out there in, in the field. But uh, back to the Greek word for um, austere, it actually means stern. I, I, he, he says, I feared you because you were a stern, stringent, exacting, hard man. He felt that the nobleman was, was too strict and too demanding. And if he committed himself to his affairs, then he wouldn't have time for a life of his own. Um, he would lose out on too many of the pleasures and the comforts of life. He would have to sweat too much. And besides, if people saw him carrying the pound around with him uncovered <laughs> and trying to do business with it, he would be ostracized from society. His friends wouldn't want to be around him anymore if they saw him carrying this around with him, studying it, trying to share it with them. He might be desynagogued. He might be hated by the citizens who hated his boss. And he might be called a fool for trying to do uh, business for someone who wasn't even around anymore and uh, who would probably never return anyway. So the third servant's excuse was to criticize the very character of the master, which demonstrates that he really didn't even know the master. He, his fear here was not a reverential fear. Yes, we are to fear the Lord, but it's with a reverential fear. His fear is a, um, a dread, angry kind of fear. And, um, and we know that he didn't know the master because he, he blamed the master for his own disobedience. As when Adam sinned, what did he do? First thing he did when the Lord confronted him, he blame shifted onto God. He says, you know, really, the reason I sinned, God, is because it's your fault for giving me that woman. <laughs> this third servant's fear was a dread kind of fear which again shows he didn't understand the true nature of the returned king because those who truly know the Lord know how great his love is for them that uh, he died for them. This man shows no love for the master. Perfect love casts out this kind of fear. It says in 1 John four eighteen, Genuine love would have wanted to produce fruit for this man, the master, in his absence. Genuine love would have so, so appreciated the pound that had been given to him that he would, not, he would want to not only invest it in the lives of others, but he would want to invest it in his own life. If he had invested it in his own life, instead of wrapping it up and hiding it on a shelf somewhere, if he had invested the pound in his own life, he would have known the character of the master. But he didn't invest it in his life because he just had it wrapped up sitting somewhere. Like the other guy dug a hole and buried it. Never used it even in his own life, much less the lives of other people. And so what he should have done, at the very least, is he should have invested the pound um, in his own heart. The man's excuse and the blame were totally irrational. And the king points that out to him. It makes no sense to have given the excuse that he did. Because if, as he said, he knew, he said he knew that the king was a hard man... If, if he knew that the king was such a hard man, taking up that which he hadn't um, sown, taking up what didn't belong to him, and reaping where he had not sown, then what did he think that the austere king would require as a return on that which did belong to him? He even admits that the pound was the master's pound. 
uh, the very least that this, this servant should have done was put the pound in a bank where at least he could have made a little interest on it if he genuinely believed that the nobleman was going to return and he was going to be held accountable for having done business with the pound. Um, so the man, his excuse is actually turned on him. The king says to him, out of your own mouth will I judge thee, thou, what? Wicked servant. Now, are those the words that true believers in Christ, you think, will one day hear? Do you think he will call any of his own wicked? I seriously doubt that. But if he does, again, I say, what a way to spend eternity being known as one of the Lord's wicked servants. But the final and strongest argument for saying that this man was not a true believer is given to us in the comparable parable over in Matthew 25. So quickly go over there and then we're going to close up. Matthew 25. And look with me. Um, let's see, where is it? Let's start at verse 14. There, uh, here again, it's, it's so similar to the parable of the pounds because the Lord talks about a man who traveled into a far country, but before he went to receive a kingdom, he called forth his servants unto him, and he gave to them uh, one of them. He gave five talents, another two, there it is, two, and then another one, one. And then when he did return from the far country, again, he calls forth his servants to give a report on what they did with the talents he had entrusted to them. And the first two servants doubled what he had given them. And so he says to both of them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou has been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the, into the joy of the Lord. But now we come to the third servant. Let's look at him beginning in uh, verse 24. It says, Then he which had received the one talent. And by the way, do you remember that argument that we had for the uh, other one where it says he was a servant? He was called a servant, so he must be a true believer. Well, this guy is also called a servant. You can go through the whole parable and see he is also called a servant. But let's look at him. He that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man. Same word there for austere. Reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, that means behold, there thou hast that is thine. Here, look, here's what's yours. I dug it up. Here it is. Aren't you proud of me? <laughs> Verse 26, his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received thine own, mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And now look at this. And cast ye the unprofitable servant where? Into outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what that is? Hell, the lake of fire. Um, now, there are some differences with this parable, but I think that this is the same end. Even though we're not given the end of the third servant in the pounds parable, I think this is the end of the third servant, which would definitely tell us that he is not a true Christian because no 
true believer will ever be cast into outer darkness. Aren't you glad for that? Because in a way, we are all unprofitable servants. Well, then we already talked about the final end of the citizens. They, they are brought before the king and they are slain. You know, the master today is yet in the far country, but his promise to return is still valid and much, much, much closer today to taking place than it was when he spoke this parable. So the question for you and I is, are we taking seriously the one task that he has commanded for us to perform in his absence? Are we occupying, and not just a pew, (laughs) are we doing business for him? Are we taking the gospel message and investing it not only in our own hearts' lives, so that we bear the fruit of truly knowing the love and the grace and the mercy and the justice and the goodness of the Lord and have a reverential fear of him, not a dread kind of fear, not an angry kind of fear, but a true fear of him. And are we investing the pound in the lives of others? I hope so, because it says, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found, what? Faithful. So let us all be faithful and fruitful until he comes, which won't be very long. So let's get busy like we never have before. There's a lot of excuses out there we could give, like this third servant, for why we, you know, life is so busy, isn't it? So many things to do, especially if you have children, so much. But stay up late, do what it takes to occupy for him because it will be worth it. It will be worth it all, not just for us, but to give back to him what he has so abundantly and richly given to us. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn from this third servant what not to be. Help us to be wise but not wicked. Help us to be industrious but not slothful and unashamed of the gospel message for it is the power of God unto salvation, not ashamed, not to want to hide it away and not to be fearful in this day of coming persecution, but to be bold. May our first and foremost occupation be to invest the pound that you have given to us in your kingdom. May we not, Father, at your return, at the, at, at the Son's return, may we not be found as possessors of napkin-wrapped Bibles or buried talents. May we truly, truly redeem our time wisely so that we might all, everyone in this room, hear the good words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. May none of us ever, ever know what it's like to be called a wicked servant. Lord, we love you. I just pray that you'll protect every woman here, bring her back safely next week for your entrance into Jerusalem. Oh, what an exciting lesson that's going to be. And Lord, I just love you. I pray that um, everyone here truly is one of your servants. For we do pray these things, Jesus, and ask them in your blessed name. Amen.